You are entering the Freedom Hut. The Lib Media has a bombshell against Kavanaugh that backfires massively on them. We'll break that down for you. Plus, the state of New York has subpoenaed eight years of Trump's taxes. Looks like they're subverting the law itself as a weapon against Trump. And Iranian-backed Houthi militants fire off a bunch of drones and perhaps even guided missiles at a Saudi oil facility. Was it the Iranians themselves? We've got that and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. I uh, knew right away that. As soon as there were these uh, stories that were popping up, the biggest one was this New York Times essay that was published on Kavanaugh. I thought, okay, here we go. Libs want to go at this again. They want to have another another shot, take another round here. Let's see what let's see what they've got. Not happy with getting lambasted the first time around. Not happy with uh, not not sufficiently smacked around intellectually by those of us on the right who destroyed their nonsense arguments, both about Kavanaugh's culpability, the the so-called credible allegations. Let me just say this. If the allegations against Kavanaugh are credible, then any allegation of any kind is credible. I mean, let's just review, shall we, what we know at this point, not even dealing with the new allegation, which I will in just a moment, but we know that Christine Blasey Ford had so many holes in her Senate testimony that Rachel Mitchell, who was a career sex crimes prosecutor, found her claims weak and said, look, this is just she's got nothing. She's got a story with no details, no corroboration, nothing. She's like, yeah, I think this thing happened to me in this house that I don't remember. And I don't remember this. and I don't remember that. And the only thing I know is Kavanaugh is bad. It's all Kavanaugh's fault. Oh, okay. And then we had Debbie Ramirez. We'll get back to that in just a moment. Deborah Ramirez, who could only remember Judge Kavanaugh thrusting, allegedly, his genitals toward her face during a party after a week of reviewing her memories with the help of a lawyer, no doubt a Democrat, as well as all of her Democrat friends, who I'm sure were saying anything to save Roe v. Wade, anything to save Roe v. Wade. And then you had finally the, uh, the, most, the most astonishing of the three, Rachel Swetnick, whose allegations were so credible that she might as well have just said that Judge, now Justice Kavanaugh, is actually a lizard space alien from the planet Zog. That's what, we're, that's what really happened in the whole Kavanaugh thing. Now, if we're going to review for a second, it was not credible. To call it credible is a smear against Kavanaugh. It was not credible. The women who came forward have since looked even less credible based on what we found out since the hearing. And so what do, what do the libs do? What do the libs do? What do they come forward with now? Oh, that's right. The New York Times has two writers who have a book coming out, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. I think that's what it's called. 
And they say, oh, but the Deborah Ramirez Yale incident, we have more information here. First of all, they say that there was, and this is, by the way, this is when you were, it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Ronan Farrow is a partisan hack. That he had been building up all this Me Too credibility to just squander it at the moment of maximum political need for the Democrats by attaching his name to a nonsense piece in The New Yorker backing up Deborah Ramirez's 30 years old claim that she was very drunk and at a party and there are holes in her memory and it took her a week talking to a lawyer to figure it out. But, you know, yeah, she thinks she's she's sure maybe kind of sort of that Brett Kavanaugh put his area in her face. Not exactly, uh, not exactly the, the stuff that convictions are made of, my friends, or even allegations, really, not in the real world. But they tell us now in this new, t- this new York Times piece that came out, this essay adapted from their forthcoming book, which I'm told by people who have read it, I haven't been able to get a copy yet, it's not released. Unfortunately, the New York Times writers don't have me on their distro list for upcoming books. It's a badge of honor. Uh, or I guess if you're on the list, it's a badge of dishonor. But they, the people I know who have read it say that they are just astoundingly anti-Kavanaugh, the authors of the book, which is not surprising at all. Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino already wrote, wrote a fantastic book, Justice on Trial, which I have read and I recommend to all of you about this. Tells you everything you really need to know about what happened here. And this was a disgusting, debased, completely, um, really evil, evil character assassination against a good man. I remember watching it on TV, and not a lot of things bring tears to my eyes, but watching that guy defend himself in front of his family, his colleagues, and about 20 million Americans who are watching live, and who knows how many have seen since then. Could have been your... That could have been your dad, your husband, your brother, your son up there. They had nothing, nothing to justify what they put him through, but it didn't matter. It was partisan spite through and through. So what do these New York Times reporters do to try to resurrect this and get some more attention for their book and sell some copies? Uh, they decide that they're going to try to corroborate the Deborah Ramirez because, you know, how can you corroborate the Blasey Ford allegation? Oh, keep in mind, Leland Kaiser, her best friend, says, no, nope, I don't believe it. Her best friend, folks, from childhood's like, nah, that didn't happen. Christine Blasey Ford's own father reportedly spoke to Kavanaugh's father at a country club in the D.C. area and said that he was glad Kavanaugh got through. To all the dads in the audience, if you thought somebody had did to your daughter what Blasey Ford lied about when it came to Kavanaugh, but alleged that Kavanaugh did, would you be glad that guy became a Supreme Court justice? We all know the answer is is no. And a lot of you are like, fuck, it would be a lot more than me not being glad. And I understand that. But they couldn't rehabilitate the Blasey Ford effort, right? That's that they they that was their best shot, and it didn't they didn't get it. So now what they do is they say, "Oh, Deborah Ramirez." There was contemporaneous, not corroboration of it, but people kind of heard about this thing, and they even claimed that her mother. They claim that Deborah Ramirez's mother, in the essay, they say remembered this. There's a big problem with that though, because in the book it says, "quote." 
She knew, quote, something happened at Yale, end quote. That's all the mom knew. Something happened at Yale. Wow. That's pretty vague, isn't it? So now we're supposed to believe that Deborah Ramirez's mother, according to these authors, remembered hearing about the alleged, now we know, fake Kavanaugh private, you know, private parts in face incident from 30 years ago. But Ramirez herself took a week of coaching from a lawyer to try to figure out really if she could get away with saying this without subjecting herself to slander suits or anything else. Right. That, that's that was what that was all about. Took her a week. Would, would any of you if someone did what she said Kavanaugh did to her, would, would it take you a week to remember that? I can tell you, I don't think so. But her, but her mom knows. Oh yeah, her mom knew about it, folks. We're not morons. These libs are out of control. The liberal media, I thought, would be destroyed by the end of Trump's presidency. That they would destroy themselves. They would self-immolate. That they would light their own credibility on fire to a point where no honest American could say, "Well, yeah, they're just journalists." I mean, if you want to watch the partisan hackery over at CNN, by all means, but just know that it's partisan hackery. But now I realize they're not even they didn't even make it through the Kavanaugh hearings with any shred. The liberal media, no shred of integrity intact after that. They Try to say that the Ramirez allegation. Oh, yeah, that was real. And then, oh, to add to it, to add to it, they say that there is a another incident, another genitals by Kavanaugh pressed in the direction of a young woman and uh, Max Steyer is the one who's claiming this. Max Steyer. Remember, during the Kavanaugh hearing, there was also somebody who claimed that Kavanaugh raped her in a boat in Rhode Island and Kavanaugh had never been to Rhode Island. I mean, so it's just, there are people saying crazy things, even crazier than the three big accusers. And even the Democrats were like, well, no one's going to buy that. And they had to and this guy, Max Steyer, initially tried to tell the FBI, yeah, I heard, you know, I saw I saw this thing happen. Well, here's the problem with that. Max Steyer, who was a, def- granted, he's a lawyer, so I'm sure he's defended a lot of people, but defended Clinton in, in uh, the Paula Jones, Clinton exposing himself to her situation, which we know Clinton was you know, guilty of. Clinton was a deviant and a pervert, but Democrats seem to have no problem with that. So Steyer's a look, Steyer's a Democrat. I mean, the guy works for some found he runs some foundation in DC. I mean, I'm sure the guy's got like a stack of ready for her t-shirts in his top in his top drawer. Okay. I mean, we all know this. But he's like, oh yeah, I, I saw Kavanaugh do this thing. And they write this essay. And this is this is a great moment, a great moment in fake news, my friends. The New York Times publishes this essay in the Sunday edition. We're we're all supposed to sit around and be like, oh my gosh, I guess. Because this other allegation's true of the un- unnamed woman having Kavanaugh press his stuff into her, you know, her vicinity. Then the Ramirez thing, this is what Kavanaugh used to do. Kavanaugh used to just walk around sticking his stuff in people's faces. Oh my gosh, it must all be true. Oh, but wait a second. New York Times had a, had a, little, a, little, a little whoopsie moment here. Because they had to append... To the essay, an editor's comment that said the following, quote, an earlier version of this article, which was adapted from a forthcoming book, did not include one element of the book's account regarding an assertion by a Yale classmate that friends of Brett Kavanaugh pushed his blank 
into the hand of a female student at a drunken dorm party. The book reports that the female student declined to be interviewed and friends say that she does not recall the incident. That information has been added to the article. That information has been added to the article? They have no corroboration, no claim whatsoever from the woman that this allegedly happened to, and they've spoken to her friends who all say that she, the alleged victim, has told them that this didn't happen, and they, and they didn't think that that was an important thing to put in the piece where they're claiming there's this other incident. I mean, don't even get me started on how this story's ridiculous. He's putting his stuff in someone's hand. That's, it's like, how? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. And, and everybody would have known about it. This is not something, you know, I went to a college where a lot of stuff was going on. A lot of people were drunk and there were a lot of shenanigans. Nobody would have gotten away with doing this. And everybody would have known about it. Everybody would have known about it, okay? And so, folks, the liberal media has gone insane. Kavanaugh, Trump, this era of wartime conservatism, of fighting back, of not just taking punches, but throwing punches, this has completely unnerved them. They are off balance. They don't know what to do. All they know how to do is try to just feed more into the propaganda machines, hope that people on our side tire, hope that something will stick. They'll get something on Trump. They'll get something on Kavanaugh. They are dishonest, bad people engaged in dishonest, bad behavior. The New York Times is a disgrace. CNN is a disgrace. These institutions have debased themselves to a point where they are no longer worthy of anyone's respect, and they certainly aren't worthy of any of ours. Judge Brett Kavanaugh is a manifestly innocent man. He was during those hearings. He is now. He has been his whole life. They hate him because of who he is. They hate him because of what he stands for. And the left and the lib media and the disgusting Democrats who are still talking six presidential candidates right on the Democrat side say they want to impeach Kavanaugh based on this like a bunch of idiots the story's already completely blown up in their faces but oh well let's just go with impeachment anyway they have shown us who they are they have no ethics they have no decency they will destroy a good man in the pursuit of power and more than anything else because they will go to any length to protect the regime of infanticide under Roe v. Wade in this country. Do not forget it. They will do anything to defend that. We've got more. We're just getting started. I'll be right back. Someone should investigate that because the fact that something has not been proven, it doesn't mean it didn't occur, right? Okay. (laughs) But if you don't investigate it, if it hasn't been investigated, then there's not been a full airing of the issue. And my point from the beginning about all of these allegations against Brett Kavanaugh is that there's not been a a robust, a meaningful uh, investigation. There's not been an investigation with the level of attention that normally would occur around these kinds of allegations. What kind of investigation? What happened at a a dorm party 30 years ago that... Nobody remembers, and and who would even have jurisdiction? Oh, let's bring in the super the super background check FBI police. I mean, give me a break. There's not been enough investigation. 
Oh, you know, the whole country was looking at this issue. You got journalists everywhere, the Democrats. They, they, it's just never enough, folks. They're, they're delusional. They, they've really they've been mentally and emotionally broken because they don't have their little favorite uh, majority on the Supreme Court anymore. And they haven't been able to defeat Trump and they just can't stop. They can't focus on what matters. They're just so fixated on this because it's too hard for them to realize that they've been wrong. And now they're just crazy. The Democrats have just gone crazy. Speaking of which. Oh, look at this. Now they're moving on to something else. Since the Kavanaugh thing looks like that just blew up in their faces, and it did, and it should. Now we find out that state prosecutors in Manhattan, according to various outlets, have subpoenaed President Trump's accounting firm, demanding eight years of his personal and corporate tax returns. That's right. This is now state criminal prosecutors politicizing their office to go after the president of the United States. Think about the precedent this sets. You know, on what basis are they looking at this? Oh, they, they, they think that maybe Trump listed the payoff to Stormy Daniels as a, as a legal expense and that maybe he concealed and they have some, they've concocted some, some theory folks. If prosecutors are desperate enough, they can concoct a theory that you killed JFK. Okay. If they're desperate enough, they'll find some way I mean, ultimately, there has to be some good faith in prosecutors' offices and the legal system. There has to be some honesty and decency or else they can investigate anybody for anything, bring charges against anyone for anything, as long as a grand jury goes along with it. And as everyone always says, they can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. It's true. So now they're going after Trump's tax returns. This is just Trump derangement syndrome playing out in, in, in uh, full display. This is, by the way, they've decided to do this, I'm sure, because, uh-oh, Looks like the Kavanaugh thing didn't work out. Like, got to move on to the next one right away. I don't even believe that that libs think that Kavanaugh's guilty anymore. They just pretend to believe it out of spite. They say, yeah, that's right. Kavanaugh, he's a he's a would be rapist and he's a bad guy. They know it's not true, but they like to say it because people like you and me that respect Kavanaugh for an ethical being an ethical and decent father and husband and family man his whole life. We like that guy, and they just pretend to believe the stuff about him to upset us. So maybe we should just ignore these loser leftists. Complete nonsense. Even Jerry Nadler said, oh, impeachment's just a term. This is a process. They can't even, they need to get a messaging meeting, and they need to read the Constitution of the Democratic Party. Americans, the Congress work for you, they work for you, and they're wasting your money and their time on trying to impeach a president where there are no high crimes and misdemeanors. They thought the Mueller report would be the end all. They even had Bob Mueller come and talk about the Mueller report, and it was a disaster. So they work for you. Tell them to vote on the USMCA, get that trade deal done. Tell them drug pricing, infrastructure, keep this great economy humming along, and stop the nonsense of harassing and embarrassing this president and the people around him when you have no constitutional legal basis to do so. She's right, but of course they're not going to stop harassing him. They're, they're not going to stop. They're going to accelerate the process. Uh, this, and, and I will be repeating this because this is the world we're going to be living in, and it is important. Uh, this 13 months or so ahead of us is going to be the craziest time in American politics, in your life or mine, most likely. Uh, I don't mean the craziest in terms of events. I mean the fighting between the political parties is just going to be off the wall uh, because the Democrats, I believe, 
have convinced themselves that defeating Trump is an existential issue for the United States and for the world. Now, you and I would sit here and say, and you probably thought this as soon as you heard those words, that's crazy. And to that, I tell you, exactly. It is crazy. That's what we face. That's the problem. So impeachment is just another whiny go-to for members of Congress and people on the various anti-Trump networks when they want something to talk about that is bad for the president, that shows the president's in trouble, you know, whatever it may be. Jerry Nadler, meanwhile, who you probably will recall as the guy who wears his pants up to his his chin, uh, the House Judiciary Committee, he says, is too tied up with impeaching the president to take immediate action on a uh, into sexual misconduct allegations against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, okay. So they're going to they're they're too busy trying to figure out if they're going to impeach the president to impeach Kavanaugh. I mean, if they try to impeach Kavanaugh, the reason I I believe I think to this day that they did not take back the Senate was because of what we saw in that summer before the midterm election in 2018. Uh, the just horrific, merciless, dishonorable conduct from all those Democrat senators. Don't forget what Kamala Harris did there. Don't forget what Cory Booker did there. Don't forget what other members of the Senate Democrat Judiciary Committee did to Kavanaugh. Keep it in the back of your mind every time you see any of them on TV any of them pretending like they care about our institutions and the rule of law. What they did to Kavanaugh was violence against the law, violence against the very concept of fairness and decency. They've never apologized. In fact, they've doubled down, which just goes to show you once again, what's our what's our thesis that runs through the show today? Yes, the Democrats have gone crazy. They're going to impeach this president. They're going to impeach this president on what grounds? Well, they'll figure that out later. There's always going to be some grounds, you see. They'll, they'll, they'll make sure that they have some basis, some justification for this going forward. Well, is it, is it the Stormy Daniels payoff? Is it Russia collusion? Is it obstruction of the non-existent Russia collusion? Is it emoluments clause? Is it the removal of the 25th Amendment? I mean, you know, what is the anti-Trump secret weapon of the day? And I worry because normal people, well-adjusted people who care about what's going on in the country would see what the would see how the media just it's like they have this wheel of fortune. They spin the wheel and it's like, oh, today's. You know, Russia, Russia, Russia Day. And then the next day, it's, oh, you know, now it's 25th Amendment Day. And then, oh, you know, we spun the wheel again. And now we're going back to, you know, the Stormy Daniels payoff. Just keep doing it. They just keep doing it. And normal, well-adjusted Americans would see this and say to themselves, at what point is it too much? At what point is it clear they should stop? They should no longer 
go through. Well, the problem is they've conditioned their audience not only to expect this, but to demand it. They need a steady diet of anti-Trump propaganda or else they think that those the journalists aren't doing their jobs. I mean, Trump is the worst. I mean, how Trump is basically Hitler. You can't find bad stories about about Trump Hitler. There's nothing out there. He must be impeachable. There must be a way we can stop him. Don't tell us that that, you know, don't tell us that you're going to throw in the towel on this one. You know, they just. They can't help themselves. And what we've seen just in the last 24 hours in the Kavanaugh situation, you know, Vox is writing some piece, you know, how to impeach him or how to remove him without impeaching him. You know, liberals have no, no ability to self-correct on this whatsoever. They were wrong. Okay, they were wrong. We were right. You know, what's you know, it's a pretty amazing thing to keep in mind in this in this whole whole process. Of, of the cabinet. Now they're saying they want to impeach him. But you know who hasn't had to change their story once? Not one time, not one correction, not one apology over the course of all the Kavanaugh allegations. Every single American who has believed in his innocence from the start. You, me, we, we haven't to say, oh, wow, I, you know, that was I, I guess we didn't understand that one or. Oh, wow. I, I, I guess, uh, you know, oh, we we just didn't really catch on to that. Oh, you know, I, sorry. Meanwhile, the other side, they put up Swetnick. She's a liar. They put up Ramirez. She doesn't remember anything. They put up Blasey Ford. She was a political hit woman trying to take down a Supreme Court justice. We know what ha- we know what this was. We've seen it every stage. Avenatti. Avenatti was the guy who brought forward. Julie Swetnick. Julie Swetnick was like, you know, the stuff she was saying was from another planet. No serious person believed that. And Democrat members of the Senate brought it up during the hearing. I think that may have inadvertently, in fact, saved Kavanaugh's nomination because no honest person could hear the Julie Swetnick thing and not say, "Okay, so this is a political hit. This is destroying a decent an innocent and decent man. I just don't know how anyone could see that and their stomach not turn. I swear to you, I really, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I would never advocate for, assist in, root for, support the destruction of somebody because they were a Democrat or because they were a man or a woman of the left who I knew was innocent because I didn't want them to be in a position of power. I would never do that. And there are so many journalists, including multimillionaire news anchors and and the big, highly paid editors and columnists for the major uh, major newspapers across the country. They were not just complicit, they were leading the charge. In the destruction of Kavanaugh based on lies, and they have never been held to account, and the only way they ever will be is if we, the American people, insist, insist that they no longer be treated like people with credibility or decency because they have neither. Do you understand why people found that offensive? Mm. I mean, so 9-11 was an attack on all Americans. It was an attack on all of us. And I certainly could not uh, understand the weight of the pain that the victims 
um, of the, the families of 9-11 um, must feel. Uh, but I think it is really important for us to make sure that we are not um, forgetting right the aftermath of what happened after 9-11. Many Americans found themselves now um, having their civil rights uh, stripped from them. Uh, and so what I was speaking to was the fact that as a Muslim, mm -hmm. um, not only was I suffering as an American who was attacked on that day, but the next day I woke up as my fellow Americans were now treating me as suspect. I'm sorry, I'm not letting this go. I know the last week it was the uh, commemoration of 9-11, and I was very happy that someone who was a, a relative of a 9-11 victim called out Ilhan Omar for her. Look, it's not that she misspoke. It's that she let us know what she really thinks. And now she's more or less saying again, look, I'm sorry that, you know, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, 9-11, big attack on America. I know it's really sad for everybody. But the really sad part was all the Islamophobia. This is what the libs say. This is a mainstream left-wing lunacy. You hear this all the time from them. Oh, you know, yeah, I mean, 9-11, you know, it was, it was bad. People died. Very, very sad. Very sad. But the real problem is all the Islamophobia. Islamophobia that didn't really exist. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if, if you know, 19 guys wearing MAGA hats drove planes into buildings and killed 3,000 people? What the, what the political fallout, what the reaction to that would be? Well, you had 19 Islamic radicals do exactly that. And there weren't, you know, uh, people being murdered in the streets uh, and, and, and killed all across the country in large numbers, in ways that made us think that this was a wave. Of course, there are some idiots who will attack. You know, there were the stories about even people who were Sikhs who were attacked because they thought they were Muslims. And, you know, there are Muslims who were attacked who are our fellow Americans and it was disgusting. But very few I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't a pandemic. It wasn't this problem that Libs pretend it is. And there were still a lot of active terror plots in the country. You know, she says it like, yeah, this like blip on the screen of, you know, Al-Qaeda was still trying to attack us years after 9-11. Al-Qaeda is still trying to attack us to this day. You had, you know, the, the Farouk Abdul-Matalib, the underwear bomber, almost blew up a full plane on Christmas Day over Detroit. Were it not for his little underwear bomb malfunctioning, would have killed over 100 people on that day. You had the Times Square bomber, Faisal Shahzad, who if he just was a little bit better at bomb building, would have easily killed a few hundred people in Times Square. I remember I was working at the NYPD in the Intel Division, got the call when that happened. San Bernardino massacre, dozens killed by an Islamic radical. Pulse nightclub, you know, dozens killed by an Islamic radical. I mean, how? And that's not even beginning to scratch the surface of all the disrupted plots, the almost plots. You know, if we weren't in the midst of, or if we hadn't been in the midst of spending just tens of billions of dollars domestically and overseas, really, you're talking more like over a trillion, trillions of dollars. You add in the wars and everything else fighting Islamic radicalism, it would have ended our way of life. We would have been, you know, facing what the Israelis faced before they built the wall, circa 2001, 2002, when there was suicide bombing after suicide bombing, just people living in panic and fear. That's what we were going to be facing. The big threat was not Islamophobia. I'm sorry. And I'm really sick of hearing about this. 
I know the statistics. I've seen all the FBI hate crime data. Every hate crime is a terrible thing. But the hate crimes that they're usually talking about aren't even violent most of the time. It's people saying terrible things or, you know, racist graffiti against Muslims or whatever it is. And meanwhile, after 9-11, we're trying to stop. You know, there was the, there was the plot to blow more planes up using liquids, which is why obviously you can't use liquids. I mean, you know, all these things that have happened. It's not like 9-11 happened. It's like, oh, they got that out of their system. It's just an outrage to hear Ilhan Omar, who is just she is like the left wing has propped her up and defended her, defended her because for identity politics purposes, she checks off so many boxes that are so important to the left. But there is an anti-Americanism in the way she views the war on terror. It's just true. Oh, and then there's the anti-Semitism, by the way. I'm not going to let that one go either. If he doesn't win, are you going to try to go back and and do you stand by your call for a boycott of Israel? I certainly hope uh, that the people of Israel make a different decision. Um, And my hope is that they recognize that his existence, his policies, um, his rhetoric really uh, is contradictory to the peace that we are all hoping that that region receives and receives soon. Um, Just right now, if you look at the annexation that's taking place, um, for many of us in Congress, there has been a long-standing support for a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this annexation now um, is going to make sure that that peace process uh, does not happen and we will not get to a two-state solution. I think what is really important is for people to understand that you have to give people the opportunity uh, to seek the kind of justice they want in a peaceful way. And I think the opportunity to boycott, divest, sanction um, is the kind of pressure that leads to that peaceful uh, process. I mean, she's still advocating BDS, folks. She just said it. Boycott, divest, sanctions. She's still talking about BDS against Israel. Hamas is a terrorist organization, a thugocracy that would murder, gladly murder as many Israeli, as many Jewish, let's say it, women and children as possible. And Ilhan Omar is still suggesting economic warfare against the state of Israel. Because of what? The Palestinians were offered 97% of the West Bank. They turned it down. They turned it down because they couldn't give up the, the, the dream of destroying Israel and the right of return of all the Palestinian refugees in the region into Israel. That's it. You know, there are consequences for bad actions and there are consequences for bad decisions. The Palestinians have made more than their share of both. BDS is anti-Semitism. Advocating as a member of the United States Congress economic warfare against the state of Israel, which is a U.S. ally, which is a democracy, which is a a good and decent state. Just shows you what what her priorities are and also shows you what she really thinks. She is an anti-Semite. She is anti-Jewish. That is reality. Democrats need to just stop pretending they can defend her all day if they want. They can keep her around as long as they can get the votes to keep her in the Congress. She's an anti-Semite, folks. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center.
All sensitive programs must be kept strictly neat and out. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. I think an escalation of the war would be a big mistake. This all comes from the Yemeni civil war where Saudi Arabia is heavily involved in another country, indiscriminately bombing civilians, killing children, and then the Houthis are supported by the Iranians. So it's back and forth, but really the answer is trying to have a negotiated ceasefire and peace in Yemen, and bombing Iran won't do that. So you have the most serious incident involving Iranian-backed rebels, and it's really the Iranians, from what we know. I mean, the Iranian-backed rebels are a... A fig leaf they are they are giving cover to what happened here but we, we have the most serious uh incident in the you know saudi i was gonna say on the arabian peninsula and, and on saudi soil yet um here's here's what we know so far there were there were drone attacks although there's some belief that it may have been cruise missiles due to the sophistication of the strikes but drone attacks on a Saudi oil field um, and and the oil production facilities, some of them went off so some of them went offline as a result of this. And people are obviously very, very concerned. You had about a 15% drop, I'm sorry, 15% spike rather in oil prices as a result of this. There are fears about the supply chain. Remember, you've got about 15 to 20% of global oil supply transits through the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz every day. The Strait of Hormuz is a strategic choke point for global oil supply. Now, the good news for us is that America has been uh, has become and thanks to fracking by the way, a technology that libs and the environmentalist left loons wanted to ban, said was going to poison all of our drinking water. Thanks to fracking, America and, you know, natural gas, America is an energy superpower. We're number one, baby, number one, which is very helpful for us because it means that the anxiety, the anxiety we have from a strategic and economic perspective about an oil shock from the Middle East is a lot less than it used to be. We have a tremendous amount of domestic Supply Now, prices would go up if you had a supply shock, obviously, but we, we don't feel like we'd have long gas lines and no one was able to get it. And, and we're not worried about an oil embargo. We're worried about a short-term spike in price as a result of a national security problem in, let's be honest, a war in the Middle East right now and, and with, with Iran. So people are very worried about this. Uh, they are very concerned about where this is leading and where this is going, understandably so. There's some debate, some discussion over whether or not this was the this was, in fact, the Houthis. Remember, the Houthis are this this uh, militia that's fighting in Yemen. Yemen is one of the one of the countries that is in the worst shape in the world right now in terms of security. You've got Al Qaeda operating there. You've got ISIS operating there. You got, you know, it's in the midst of a civil war. It's a total mess. And the Saudis have been bombing uh, bombing the rebels there, bombing the Houthis. And there's a lot of allegations, at least, and I think the allegations are, are correct, that the Saudis are, let's just say, not particularly uh, choosy about their targets and are hitting a lot of civilians. And, and perhaps a better way of saying is that the Saudis are actually just blowing up a lot of innocent people along with the rebels that they're fighting. It's a nasty war on the 
Arabian Peninsula. That's what's going on right now. It's a nasty war, and it there's a Sunni-Shia divide that is playing out here. You've got the Houthi militia, Iranian-backed. Iran is the Shia power. And then you have the government, the central government in Yemen, backed by the Saudis. And the Saudis are now, thanks to billions and billions of dollars of American military purchases, the Saudis are the premier Middle Eastern uh, Sunni Arab military. And they are fighting it out. Now, we don't want to get involved beyond what we absolutely have to. I mean, I think that's why... uh, that's why there are people that are already uh, already pointing this and saying, hold on a second. If someone should retaliate against the Iranians and there's going the Iranians have obviously come out and they've said, oh, no, we didn't do this. And and it wasn't us. And these are all terrible lies. OK, if if somebody should retaliate against the Iranians, shouldn't it be the Saudis? Uh, wh- why are we selling them billions of dollars of planes and missiles and everything else? If they're not going to be the ones who uh, who strike back in an incident like this, they attacked Saudi oil facilities. They didn't attack American oil facilities. Shouldn't you know, the Saudis are not defenseless. The Saudis are not helpless. The Saudis are actually much, uh, much more militarily sophisticated than any of the forces or factions in Yemen, including the Houthis. So what should we do here? I mean, people are worried. They're saying, oh, oil might go to one hundred dollars a barrel. Look, I think, and I'm not trying to be a market speculator here, I think that you saw the worst of the fears over the oil supply shock today. If we're going to do something to the Iranians, it should be establishing that there will not be, uh, there will not be any tolerance whatsoever of a strike on an American tanker, American interest in the region. And if they set off a true catastrophe that affects global oil prices, you know, environmental catastrophe. I mean, look, it wouldn't be hard for the Iranians to just blow up a couple of tankers in the Strait of Hormuz and then say, oh, it wasn't us, right? It was the, it was somebody else. It was the Israelis, right? The the Iranians will always, always blame the Israelis for anything, no matter how crazy it is. Uh, So I, I just don't want us getting, getting pulled into another Middle Eastern conflict right when it seems like we're just gasping our first breath of of air now where we're not looking to get into another we're not in the midst of another major fight in the middle east i think this is absolutely what needs to what needs to happen here Uh, we need to make sure that the iranians understand what our red lines are and you know people that are all by the way all this stuff about oh what what do we do now oh because bolton's gone the iranians are lashing out i think i think they're giving bolton way too much credit on this um, I, I think that by supporting the Saudis as we do and telling them, look, if you want to if you want to hit back at the Iranians and the Houthis, you know, go for it. Um, that's that's the way to handle this. You know, why if if the Saudis aren't going to fight back when something like this happens on their soil to their oil facility, why are we selling them billions of dollars of munitions? But we got Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer. He's going to give us his view on this in just a moment. Stay with me. Are we going to strike Iran? question in a lot of people's minds right now weighty one deals with war uh, with uh, war and peace we are joined now by our friend lieutenant colonel tony schaefer he is a retired intelligence operative and president of the london center tony great to have you back 
Hey, Buck, always great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. All right, so tell me, what yeah. what do uh, what, what should Trump, what should the president, in your estimation, do in response to these uh, Iranian attacks on Saudi oil production, oil facilities? Well, I'm glad you put it in that frame because it's very clear that the Houthi uh, tribe, whatever you want to call them, this uh, group in Yemen, is not technically or militarily capable of launching a, sophistic- a very sophisticated attack against uh, uh, the uh, oil production uh, um, targets that were hit. So um, I think there are two options that are on the table. One is um, to allow our regional allies, the Saudis, or another uh, proxy military to do something. Um, As you and I both know, we've spent a lot of money, time and resources training those folks. And uh, I I would not put it past uh, allowing for uh, the extension of uh, what General Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, has called the buy what and strategy. Uh, obviously, it worked in Iraq. I think it's something that uh, they're they're weighing right now. Secondly, to your point, is a, a direct strike of some sort. And there's there's two things that, that are holding back direct military action. Uh, first off, as we've already noticed, there was a five percent reduction in oil uh, oil uh, availability by the tax. So we don't want to add to that. At the same time, we don't want to see um, the Iranians emboldened to continue to do this sort of thing. So uh, I would, if I were the president, consider both. I would consider uh, some level of military action at specific military targets, the IRGC or the Quds Force, and make it very clear that uh, that we're not trying to expand the conflict. But at the same time, you know, we've got to be aware of the fact that uh you know, this is a very aggressive uh, action, um, and if not for the potential damage to the produ- regional production of oil, I think there would have already been military action taken. What do you think the Iranians' strategy is here? I think to a lot of uh, a lot of people looking at this, it seems like they're 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 poking the dragon, and they have to know that. Why are they doing that? I think it's because they actually have not really understood or have comprehended that President Trump will take military action. And I think uh, a lot of folks have, I think, mixed feelings about John Bolton leaving. And uh, between you and me, Buck, you know, like I've said this on, on my Twitter feed, I, I take Carl, uh, Tucker Carlson's position on this more. I think John Bolton uh, overall was... Uh, I think giving uh, advice to the president he didn't want or need. With that said, sometimes military action is appropriate and necessary. And I think this is a very difficult thing to understand. Uh, The Iranians, I think, are banking on us remaining passive. That is to say that I think they they believe that any disruption in the oil supply would be more uh, of concern than military action. I think that's the equation they're looking at. Uh, it's a tough one uh, because, uh, you know, I think it's very possible that you would see more damage regarding uh, production, more uh, damage to availability, and, of course, the costs. Uh, with that said, I think the United States being a, a net producer and exporter now of oil, um, I think we could take with some level of uh, assurance any price increase. Others cannot. So this is where I think the president would be would do well to leverage one of the biggest importers of Saudi oil, oil uh, China, 
to have China look at uh, how they can be helpful, as well as Russia. Russia is a big importer of uh, Iranian oil. And so I think there's uh, there's some real issues where, uh, you know, we have to look at other allies to put pressure on them. Ultimately, uh, unfortunately, I think there's a very good possibility of some level of military strike against Iranian targets. And I think it may just take us doing that to get the Iranians' attention. Now, what do the Iranians think that, that the, the long-term play is here? I mean, are, are they just hoping that through this agitation that there will be political pressure here in the States because we, we are war-weary as a population? We have just had enough of trying to make the Middle East you know, safe for democracy or get rid of all the terrorists or whatever the mission is this year. I mean, Tony, you and I know it's been changing yeah. over the, the now almost two decades right. we've been doing it. But, right. uh, you know, are, are they just hoping that by acting out, lashing out in this way, that Trump and, and Congress will say, you know what, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to the Iran nuclear deal that Obama signed, where the Iranians get rich and they can still get a nuke in the end? Is, is that the hope? What's the hope? I think hope is the Iranians uh, are, are looking for economic relief. I mean, that's the whole point of this, is that uh, the president said, I think, appropriately, and, and I, I don't believe forever he's ever said that he would meet with the Iranians unconditionally. I think the conditions they're looking for is the Iranians returning to the negotiating table regarding the nuclear program, and in the meantime, continuing uh, the extensive economic uh, sanctions against them. I think economically... Uh, they are being hurt. Uh, I know the uh, Europeans are finally coming around uh, little by little begrudgingly. So I think that's what they're trying to do is to remind the Europeans that, look, uh, uh, we could do a lot of damage to the world economy if you guys don't kind of play to our game. And so, again, I think the Iranians are playing kind of a, a game of chicken. They're trying to see how far they can go to get what they want without causing damage to the, uh, the their ability to, you know, rule and do the things they want in the region to expand their their influence and at the same time uh, make us back off and again i i if you look at it they've been continuing continuing to ratchet up the aggressiveness with some hope that eventually this is going to result in in europeans putting pressure on us to back off and and uh, go easy on them and again i think it's uh it's one of those situations where I, i'm not a i'm not a neocon but you know you cannot continue to see regional aggression unchecked uh, if, if the Iranians think somehow they're going to be able to use that military aggression that, uh, to, to their benefit. Why haven't we been more successful, or maybe a better way to frame this, Tony, and we're speaking to Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer, he's retired intelligence operative, president of the London Center. Uh, why haven't we had more luck trying to get the Iranians, uh, try, trying to use this, this pressure campaign to get internal change. I mean, regime yeah. change in Iran from, from within, <laughs> not from without, right? Regime change yeah. from pressure from inside the Iranian state has been the hope of most of the free world for a very long time now. It doesn't seem like it ever works. Why are the yeah, Iranians I, I, so good at, at suppressing any dissent? I mean, their economy is getting its butt kicked right now. People can't be happy. They're not happy with the autocracy. What's going on there? I think it's a great question and a fair one. Um, let me be careful in my comments here because my personal thoughts are not in line with the uh, the White House thoughts. My belief is, uh, you know, and you know I've spoken about this before, I think we missed a huge opportunity in 2009 when the Iranian Green, green Movement um, 
was trying to essentially create conditions to overthrow the mullahs in Iran. It was uh, the Green Movement. Uh, I, I called it the, uh, the Persian Spring. We missed a great opportunity. And I'm still uh, of belief that the, the best solution to the regional challenges that have been perpetrated by Iran is regime change. And yeah, I, I think a diplomatic, uh, a, a, a popular uprising of Iranians, of Persians, wishing for a uh, a, a form of democracy is our best bet. Uh, most democracies I know of do not seek uh, to be aggressive to other regional powers. So I think ultimately that's the the end state we seek. With that said, I think anytime anybody mentions regime change, somehow. It becomes something we should drive. And I'm not one of those that says we should do it. I'm saying we should encourage it and support it based on our principles. Um, the Iranian government is very effective. Uh, many of the mechanisms put in place by uh, the Shah, the, you know, the Sabak and the other secret police, those mechanisms and, and that system kind of took over and has been used effectively by the Iranian government. And the IRGC is very effective. They, uh, they've been very effective in purchasing and maintaining technology, which allows them to spy on their own people. Uh, they have a very strong and sophisticated uh, internal police system. It's not going to be easy if the, if the Iranian people do it. But I think culturally and uh, just uh, the, of the interests of the people, I think most Iranians have recognized the, the, the folly of their government, of the, the theocracy which runs the country. But it's, again, one of those mixed bag things, Buck. No, I, I don't think we should do it. If uh, that is to say that we should uh, you know, go in and, and invade or do anything to prompt that, if the people rise up, if the people seek like Hong Kong right now, as you've seen Hong Kong, a lot of the people there have been you know raised, using the American flag as their symbol and demanding that uh, there's some there be a, a maintenance of their essentially democratic system in some form. Uh, we should encourage that. But with that said, um, you know it, it's up to them to do it, uh, not to us. Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer, everybody. Uh, Tony, great to have you as always. Thanks for sharing your perspective, your expertise, man. We'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Buck. All right, team, we'll be right back. You are so well-educated. You know that you, know, you can talk about socialism any way you want. Pol Pot was a brutal autocrat and dictator. That wasn't about socialism. That was about him being an evil human being. You know, you can go to Scandinavia or Denmark and see socialism. They're not killing people. Why paint with that kind of brush against a set of ideas coming from a Democrat in your own country? And that's the thing is Pol Pot learned socialist ideologies in France and wanted to create this utopia. And and quickly that evolved into the murderous regime in which it became. And we need to have that conversation in this country of what socialism has become throughout history. Time and time again, we have seen how that doesn't work. And so, you know, right now you talk about, you know, Canada and Denmark and some of those other places like and the the they have they have become capitalist nations. Okay, let's let's do this, shall we? Let's let's crack them. We got Bro Cuomo here, who's like, hey, I threaten to throw people down staircases if they say something about me being Fredo. But I'm smart. I'm real smart. I've got ideas too. It's not just the governor who's smart. I'm smart too. Producer Mark, have you even seen The Godfather? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Of course I've seen The Godfather. All right, all Come right. I, you know, I didn't know if you know, you're just watching like The O.C. or whatever you young cool what kids. What is The O.C.? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> he doesn't even know what The O.C. is. All right, forget it. 
Uh, More of a Jersey Shore kind of guy. Ah. You know who just got out? The situation. The situation. Yeah. Free man again. Yeah, ladies. Here's the situation. Remember that with the with the abs? Anyway, uh, this is a great moment here of, of Chris, Chris Cuomo, Bro Cuomo, a.k.a. Fredo Cuomo, who is uh, out there. Tell, I mean, he said it. He says, you know, the Pol Pot has nothing to do with socialism. Uh, you know, Cuomo went to Yale. He went to Yale not because he's smart, but because he's a Cuomo. And these schools are are just absolutely pathetic when it comes to, if you're a famous Democrat, you get to go to whatever Ivy League school you want. Like, if you have a famous Democrat, if you're a Kennedy, a Clinton, an Obama, a Cuomo, a you name it, a Gore, you get to, you know, Harvard, Stanford, wherever you want to go, you, you could be illiterate. And they would take you. So start with that. So just please do not think for one second that Pro Cuomo was hitting the books real hard. You ever listen to this guy talk about the guy? <laughs> if he was hitting the books, it was because he was lifting them, bro. Look at those biceps. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Swole club. Bam. Not book club. Swole club. So anyway, Pro Cuomo is, is saying things like it has nothing to do with socialism. And the problem with that is that Pol Pot was explicitly trying to create an agrarian socialist state. Pol Pot, who uh, led a, a genocide in Cambodia, uh, he, he was the general secretary of the Communist Party of Kampuchea, Cambodia, from 1963 to 1981. All right, he, uh, he led a revolution there that was a Marxist Leninist revolution with the Khmer Rouge and you know, murdered a couple million people, which was uh, about a quarter of Cambodia's population. And, uh, you know, this was in back in the 70s. And there's, uh, you know, there's the movie The Killing Fields. I and mean, there's been some some work done on on explaining to people what what happened here. But here we have this is a perfect CNN moment where you have Bro Cuomo who is you know hopefully not not going a little a little too heavy on the on the weight gainer formula you know RGX35 like get shredded you know you know that stuff that they always advertise yeah that's right i'm smart on tv and then i lift uh he's saying that there's nothing about socialism with Paul Pot. I mean, this is just a stupid... If I said something like this on TV, and I've said things on TV before that were a little bit wrong, and I can tell you that like, I, I lose a little sleepover. I mean, I, I'm very embarrassed if I, say, if I just say something. I never get embarrassed when I used to get you know, the moron, the moron assault at CNN, because there's nothing you can do about it. It's just like arguing with an idiot on the street. But you know, I, if I ever say something wrong, which I will tell you has been very rare... But I, I'm embarrassed by it. Cuomo's not embarrassed by this. Yeah, Pol Pot's got nothing to do with socialism. Other than the fact that he's a socialist, sure, it has nothing to do with socialism. Other than the fact that it was a socialist revolution based on Marxist, Leninist principles of class warfare, you're right, it has nothing to do with socialism. Okay, so that's part one. Now, you could say, if you wanted to take a the most favorable Bro Cuomo version possible here, what you would do is you'd say, okay, well, but he really wants to say, well, there's socialism in Cambodia, but there's socialism in Denmark, and in Denmark, you don't have a genocide yet. Okay, well, let's deal with that for a moment. Socialism is, and this is what the Libs, the Bernie Sanders, the Elizabeth Warren, all the, you know, AOC, socialism is a flawed idea. 
discussed before, central planning does not allow for the local improvisation and the inputs of a price system that make for functional and prosperous and free societies, right? Top-down control from people who don't have good information and who are also always justifying every decision by saying it's for the good of the revolution. Essentially, their decision-making is in and of itself a good thing because there have to be decisions made by this central committee, this group of central planners. So socialism is a bad idea. It is bad every time it is tried. But not all, not all countries are equally socialist. They like to talk about Denmark and Sweden. Let's do a quick review. Denmark and Sweden were, let's just focus on Sweden for a second so I can speak in, in greater specifics. Sweden, in, from the, let's say the 1900s up until the 1960s, was a very prosperous country. It was doing very well. GDP per capita was very, very high. And then, right around the time when we were instituting all these great society programs, Sweden went very heavy into socialist uh, uh, you know, command and control economy, uh, central planning, massive welfare state, and Swedish, gro- Swedish growth up until the 1990s was at a snail's pace. But you see, it had acquired a lot of wealth up to that point, a lot of social capital. It was a well-off society. It's the same reason why de Blasio, who is an imbecile with no work ethic whatsoever, hasn't been able to totally destroy New York City yet because it's a city of 8 million people and it's one of the, you know, the greatest concentrations of, of wealth, culture, the arts, etc. in the world. Okay, so, yeah, he hasn't been able to totally destroy it because he's not competent enough to destroy it. Swedish central planners made their country markedly less wealthy than it would otherwise be, slowed growth down to a snail's pace. And guess what they did? They realized they couldn't over the long term and they still have problems with this afford their uh, their welfare state. They realized they needed to uh, deregulate their economy, to liberalize their economies. And now Sweden and Denmark rank ahead of the United States on economic freedom indices. And so when you look at this now, you say, well, hold on a second. How socialist really is Sweden? It actually is uh, has a low. Sweden has a, at least until the Trump tax cuts came along, had a lower corporate tax rate than we did. The real place that Sweden is different than America economically right now is that they have very high taxes on the middle class to pay for a very large welfare state. Now, that, now there, is, there is socialism in that. There's no question. But there aren't people deciding what businesses you can open in Sweden and what products to make and how I mean, there, that, that has been wrung out of the economy because it was such a bad idea. So the, so the question is, you know, America is a very wealthy country, but, you know, the public school system here is socialism in action. Is, has a public school system been a great success story? No. Look at, look at consumer electronics in this country over the last 40 years and look at the public school system. Which one seems to work better? The thing that people freely pay for? Well, you know, which has gotten more efficient, cheaper, and just all around better? Or the thing that a bunch of bureaucrats decide where the money goes, what's going to be done, what's going to be taught. Central planning doesn't work. Cuomo does not understand this philosophically, obviously. Liberals in this country who go, Sweden, Sweden, Sweden. First of all, Sweden and Denmark are the outliers historically 
if you're looking at social. They're the outliers. You can't point to them and be like, oh, well, look at these countries. They're tiny countries that are, uh, that are generally, until recently, religious and ethnic monocultures, right? There's really only one, you know, the, the Swedes were all Swedes. And while the atheism is essentially now the official religion of Sweden, or it's very close to it, you know, people generally come from the same background, speak the same language. You know, they they had a lot of social capital built up, a lot of social cohesion that allow them to be better at central planning, even though central planning is always a bad idea than other places that have greater disparities and and and, you know, feuds and ongoing, you know, essentially Sweden's not Yugoslavia. You know, you know, Sweden's not about to break up and warring factions and all these different, you know, religious and ethnic groups. And, you know, people are, are, are struggling over. So to, to point at Sweden would be like me saying, I know that communism works. Look at the look at the Jesuits. Look at the Society of Jesus. OK, well, yeah, that's a bunch of priests that make sharing work. But I don't think that's a model for the rest of the world. When you look historically at socialism, what you see is that it is fails everywhere that it is tried it is tried at different levels and different severities depending on the country we're talking about and that the more socialist a country really is see cuba venezuela cambodia the soviet union you know the more socialist a country really is the more tyrannical and poor and miserable the country is so socialism is a bad thing but Cuomo doesn't seem to understand. And also, I mean, just saying that Pol Pot is in socialism is uh, that's just nonsense. <laughs> I mean, that's just he's like, hey, he's not a so he just calls himself a so he's just run a socialist revolution. He's not actually a socialist. It was, it, was a, it was a head fake. You know, it's like when you take a couple of take a couple of 50s out of the weight rack and then you're like, oh, and then when the guy turns around, you actually go get the 30s. It's like that. All right. Well, that's one way to go. I think it is terribly important that people begin to understand that they are not the only people in America who cannot afford health care. That you got tens of millions of people in that position. That they are not the only person in the world who goes to the drugstore and cannot afford to buy the medicine that they need. Millions of people in the same boat. And at the end of all of that, what we have got to appreciate, the current health care system works very well for the insurance industry and the drug companies who make billions a year in profits. It is not working for working families in this country. So what is the Bernie Sanders, you know, to continue our, our discussion of socialism here, what is the Bernie Sanders answer? You know, Bernie Sanders is also talking about making uh, their regulations on, on housing, and making regulations on housing so that you can't raise rents at, at, at a certain level. And he's doing that, uh, not understanding that everywhere that that has happened, everywhere where there are strong uh, there, I should say, there are uh, very intrusive regulations on housing and the housing supply. You have housing shortages and people can't afford to live there. And then the government says, "Okay, well, we'll build your housing. And the government comes in. And guess what? People don't like government housing. Why? Because the government doesn't make a profit off the housing. The government can't say we're going to make really beautiful, wonderful houses and people are going to and the market will respond and we'll make our money back and then some and then we'll make more beautiful houses. No, the government comes in and builds things that look like they're out of, uh, you know, 
Ukraine circa 1975 and says, you know, here you go, live in this thing. And then guess what? The housing in the air. This is the this is the, the story of projects, housing projects in New York City, as well as other places in the in the surrounding area. Real estate value plummets. Big housing projects built by the government never go up in value. And you, it's the problem. Just they keep making the problem worse. They don't make the problem better. Bernie Sanders doesn't understand. He doesn't understand the basic workings of a market. I really doesn't get it. Um, and that's why he says that when he's talking about health care, he thinks that drug companies are going to start, uh, you know, the, 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 we're going to be able to do this. How now there is a problem. There is a problem with drugs being too expensive. But the way to make drugs less expensive is not to say, oh, you know what? We're just going to take we're going to have a government, the government pay for all health care, because then do you know what happens. The. Drug companies find ways to just make sure that they are now just getting they're getting paid off by the taxpayer. And they're going to say, look, you can either pay us X amount or we're going to shut down operations. We're not going to make these drugs anymore. I mean, you, you know, here's the price. You can either pay our price and then fine. If it's going to be single payer, if it's going to be Medicare for all, have the have the taxpayers writing the check. They're going to make it sound like the government. The government doesn't have any money. The government only has your money. But they make the taxpayers write the check. And then if it's not high enough, you know what they're going to do? They're going to just cease operations. So and, and, and then you say, well, well, Bernie Sanders just says, well, they can't make as much money as they're making. OK, well, what's. What's the allowable profit margin that Bernie, see, now you get into central planning. Bernie Sanders doesn't know. What will the market bear when it comes to drugs and drug pricing? Bernie Sanders doesn't know. And, you know, there's another big problem that doesn't ever really get discussed in this whole Medicare for all fantasy that Bernie Sanders is peddling. And that is the rest of the world are effectively free riders off of American healthcare innovation, drug companies. You know, who has who has the best drug companies, the biggest drug companies and the most medical innovations in the world? It's America. There's no question you know, do you, where if you're going to have, you know, open heart surgery. Do you want it to be in a major American city or do you want it to be in name some other? You want it to be in Beijing? It's a very wealthy country when you, you know, especially at the top level. China's are a, a wealthy country. The individuals in it aren't necessarily wealthy, but. They just don't get it, though. I mean, Bernie Sanders does not understand that he's just going to make the problem worse, that there will be there will be rational responses from people in the healthcare industry, and they will either cozy up to big government, which I think is the most likely situation, which is exactly what happened with Obamacare. OK, fine. You, you say that this is the way it is. We're going to operate at a, at a bare minimum level. We'll take our allowable 10 percent profit. We won't do any innovation, any R&D because there's no incentive. Or they'll just say, fine, if you're going to regulate us so much, we're just going to, you know, we're going to go do something else. We'll see, you know, see you later. We'll make, you know, you know, hand creams and dermatological products that people will actually pay money out of pocket for. That's what they're going to do. That's what markets do. Bernie doesn't. He, it's not. I can't even get that mad at him because he's just so ignorant. He doesn't know. We would ban all flavors besides tobacco and menthol. Vaping is dangerous, period. I am a former cigarette smoker. 
it is highly addictive and highly difficult to stop and to stay away from cigarettes for the rest of your life. It is a real struggle. The addiction to nicotine is powerful. The law is clear. You cannot sell these products to people under 18 years old. It is theoretically a criminal offense to be selling these products to people under 18 years old. Nobody needs to be vaping pomegranate flavor. Nobody should be taking into their lungs raspberry, lemon lime, chocolate souffle, or other flavors of vaping, according to Governor Cuomo of the formerly great state of New York. Now we have questions because Cuomo is the governor. You know, this guy. I just, I don't, I can understand how he's a governor of one of the biggest states in the country, one of the wealthiest states in the country. This is this is the best we can do, New York. Sometimes I give a hard time to to other states. You know, I gave some tough stuff to uh, Michigan over Jennifer Granholm. I've, I definitely pointed out to people before uh, that you know, there's some states that definitely could do better than than what they've got. But I mean, Cuomo. Who remembers this? By the those of you who are who are uh, OSS will remember these days. Forget the extremists. It's simple. No one hunts with an assault rifle. No one needs 10 bullets to kill a deer. People do hunt with an assault rifle. Some people want more than one round to defend their home. A bolt-action rifle, if you are in a gunfight with somebody, is a disadvantage. Nobody needs pomegranate flavored vape. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. It's just like we're this is the these are the battles we have to fight now. This is what we have to focus in on. Uh you know, he's he's definitely drilling down on this gun control thing right now. And the left is just looking for anything that they can latch on to that will create enthusiasm because they can't get enthusiasm from supporting any of their candidates there is no enthusiasm really for any for, from the party writ large which is a phrase that i hate but from the party writ large there is no particular enthusiasm at all um they recognize that their candidates are weak and so they're just trying to use these hot button issues that are not going anywhere that aren't going to mean anything in the long run i think i mean i could be wrong but I doubt, there's not going to be any legislation until at least after the election. So this is really just all talk from the Democrats. Um, but that's why you get uh, Cuomo out there pushing uh, and, and others are actually pushing gun control right now. I mean, of course, they're supporting gun control right now. This is very important to uh, their plans going forward for total control of all of us. Uh, uh, well, vaping control is what Cuomo's really focused on. Gun control is what, say, Mayor Pete and Beto and others are focused on. 
We have a chance, finally. We have an opportunity to actually have this be different. You know, I was watching that, With uh, background that checks. conversation. Not just background checks, red flag laws, doing something to disarm domestic abusers, uh, even uh, an assault weapons ban on, on new sales. That is huge. Because even though we've been talking about it for years, uh, it's just been talked since since I was in high school. we got to act fast because if, if even the president had to at least temporarily pretend to be for uh, common sense gun laws, that means that we've got an opening. Let's jump through that opening, get something done, save lives, and if there's more we can do later let's have that debate later uh none of none of this is going to help with anything i mean you already can't have a gun if you're convicted of a crime of domestic abuse i believe that's a federal law it's definitely true in many states so you start with that um and then red flag laws are (laughs) let's remember that the uh, Nick, the, the nicholas cruz the shooter in florida i know some people don't like to use names but nicholas cruz the shooter in florida he was a walking, talking neon sign saying, I'm going to shoot a lot of people. I am deeply mentally disturbed and evil. And police were called. Everyone knew and no one could do anything about it. So you're now you're going to institute red flag laws that will do what exactly um, that are going to stop him from getting guns. Well, that wouldn't have stopped the Sandy Hook shooter who just took his parents guns. So now you're going to take the guns of other people that are living in the same home as somebody or have somebody who has mental health uh, issues that that rise to the level of a of a safety concern, which is which is very rare. Right. But that's yeah, these are this is going to cause big problems. Look, I've said it before. I mean, the the no fly list even is probably not constitutional but to take away to take away people's uh, rights, rather to penalize people as a government without any due process whatsoever. It's it is problematic. It just is. Uh, as much as people want to feel safe. Remember, you know, this is nothing new. I mean, politicians have been using scare tactics to get what they couldn't otherwise get for as long as there have been politicians. They want to make people people fearful because when you are fearful, you are uh, more likely to listen to anybody who comes up with a solution to your fear. So they are the they are the arsonist and the firefighter here. They they create this climate of, oh, my gosh, you're you're so unsafe. The truth is, even with the mass shootings that have happened last year, you are safer in this country now than you have been in 50 years. That's the reality of living in America today. You are safer now as a as a, a Gen X or Gen Y or millennial than the boomer generation was at their at, at the same age. So. People that say things like, oh, we should return to what? The, the old days, like the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, when there was really serious, uh, massive crime waves that were, were hitting this country year after year. I mean, no, it's just nonsense. But I've got to say, you know, Mayor Pete at least speaks with some, he does speak with, with uh, eloquence. It's bitter and it's often wrong, but it, he, he is a well-spoken guy. Then you just have Beto, who just says like, like he's just like a guy who... You can just feel like he was in a 90s rock band and now and like he never made it big because like people thought they were a little derivative of Nirvana or whatever. But like now he wants to be president. He totally wants to be president. Even from those Texans who own AR-15s, they've told me this themselves. I don't need this. I don't need it to hunt. I don't need it to protect myself. It was fun to use. I like taking it out to the range. But if giving this back or cutting it to pieces or selling it to the government helps to keep us safer, then by all means, let's do it. What? I mean, what? <laughs> what? What? What AR-15? I'm sorry. I'm totally I'm like, what? 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 
who, who says that? I, I want to meet this person. I, I want to meet the the Texas AR-15 owner who's like, he's like, yeah, I don't need to keep my AR-15. I'm happy to just cut it up into pieces for you, Beto. <laughs> what? I've spent a lot of time in Texas, okay? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, absolutely not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's totally ridiculous. Oh, but, but but Beto gets even crazier. This is what I was looking for on our on our cut sheet. Play this. This one's even better. We are a nation of laws, and if that ends up becoming a law of the United States of America, then we expect the people of this country to comply with it. Yep, there you go. Just letting you know. You better comply with our with our uh, assault rifle ban, which and he remember he's not talking about well, what happened before was a ban on people buying new quote assault rifles. And please stop, don't send me like fuck. There's no such thing as assault rifle. I know, but what do you want me to say? What do you want to? And how do you want me to describe it? Semi-automatic rifles? Well, with some specific uh, specifically listed semi-automatic rifles. You know, this reminds me of how you know how you move into a building. Probably you, a lot of you are not urbanites like me so you have another deal with this if you move into buildings and they have a list sometimes of prohibited dogs and the truth is any dog can can be really mean and can be a biter but there are lists of dogs they won't let in there it's sort of like what they do with with assault rifles they just say well if you're on the assault rifle list you are banned right but what beto is saying is even stronger or even even more intrusive than what happened before the so-called assault rifle ban because it would be a mandatory, I don't like the term buyback, it's confiscation. Let's say it is confiscation with some compensation. And by the way, they are not going to pay you. I think the government's going to give you what your what your gun is worth in the private market. I don't think. Do you think the government would give you what your, if they, if they seized your house, would they give you what you could get in the private market? Nope. You think that any of the uh, libs that would pass, assuming they have a majority legisl- uh, in the both chambers of the Congress to pass it. You think that they're going to care if some gun owners feel like they're getting shortchanged on their on the buyback program? Uh-uh. So not only are they going to take your gun away from you, but they're going to make sure you don't even get fair market value for it. So start with that. But Beto's like, yo, you better turn it in or else, or else I'm totally going to like send people in for you. I will say I saw something over the uh, over the weekend. I mean, I don't know. I can't remember who it was. It was. Um, I don't want to say because it was. It was definitely one of my conservative brothers. Uh, not my actual brother, but one of my conservative brethren in the media game who said, if you think that law enforcement will not enforce a mandatory, a confiscation regime, you know, think again. And I I go back and forth on that. I I think it really depends on the state because I can tell you that even here in New York City, I know that the NYPD they love to seize any illegal firearm and and it's considered a a feather in the cap so to speak of of any you know young patrolman or or anyone who's trying to make their name in in law enforcement starting out if they can get even a double-barreled shotgun that's not registered that you know has dust all over it from someone's home you know if it's an illegal gun seizure it's considered a very good thing and I do talk to cops as well occasionally. And now some of you who are law enforcement in very Second Amendment friendly states are going are to probably have a hard time believing this. You can talk to cops in some very liberal places and they really don't want an arm. I'm not saying all of them. I'm just saying I have spoken to law enforcement officers who, you know, they kind of wish there, there weren't, uh, you know, so many armed citizens, you know, which is I think they're conflating armed bad guys with armed citizens, but they are sometimes Supportive of gun control, believe it or not, it is a real thing. 
Um, and I, I never, I never have that in gun friendly states, but in gun banning states, I do think the propaganda has even seeped into some of the law enforcement community. They're just like, well, look, as far as we're concerned, we should be the only people that have guns. It's a very, uh, Scary thought, because then, of course, the Second Amendment is null and void. But I have come across that. Uh, but we're not going to we're not going to go down quietly on this one. That is for sure. Uh, I don't think Beto or Buddha Judge are going to get their way. But Trump uh, Trump White House says they're going to release something this week. So we will have to see if, in fact, they're going to go ahead with some kind of gun legislation. We want this to be bipartisan, but we're not going to allow Uh, bad actors who should not have firearms in the first place, who then murder innocent Americans, to be the excuse that a bunch of liberals and socialists have to confiscate firearms from law-abiding citizens who have legally procured them. And I'm not going to allow people who are constantly maligning and deriding our law enforcement to be in charge of public safety, public policy. Oh, Kellyanne Conway, it's almost like she was listening to the show there because we had that one all, all teed up. I just didn't know it. Uh, she's saying that, don't worry, Trump's not going to do anything that will uh, be disrespectful of Second Amendment rights. Well, I, I don't here. The problem is that there's nothing that they can do that isn't disrespectful of sec, of the Second Amendment that doesn't undermine, I should say, the Second Amendment. There's nothing they can do that doesn't accomplish that or doesn't do that that Democrats would go along with, not even for a second. Democrats, the only legislation that is acceptable to Democrats on this matter is legislation that sticks a thumb in the eye of legal gun owners and the NRA and anybody who supports the Second Amendment. That's the only thing that will be acceptable to Democrats as a legislative act. And they're not even really concerned with the legislation. They just want to have Elizabeth Warren going around saying, you know, oh, if you want to save lives, you have to do what we say. And everyone goes, oh, my gosh. Can Elizabeth Warren please speak through an interpreter or something so we don't have to hear her? It's horrible. Really, it's true. I'm just, I'm just saying, look, she's a politician. She's public figures open to criticism. Speaking of public figures open to criticism, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much I want to go back and forth on on this, um, but Joe Walsh is still thinking he's going to run for president, and uh, he's talking about bringing in George Conway. I, I promise we're gonna. I'm, I'm gonna stop talking about this this third kid. It's just so ridiculous, and I, I know what some of, some of these never Trumpers. I mean, Walsh is a perfect example of this. It's just all about him and his earnings and his personal brand. It has nothing to do with conservatism. And this guy, the stuff he was saying on Twitter, I was amazed he didn't get banned before Twitter bans were a thing we were talking about. Uh, you know, he said some crazy stuff. I remember when I used to do a lot of CNN, he'd come on sometimes and say, oh, I know I know why they like this guy at CNN because he's the classic, uh, cons- he's a classic quote conservative, unquote, blowhard. Just goes on TV. He's like, "Yeah, this and that, and yeah, Constitution. I hate Obama and blah blah." And it's all this crap uh, that he doesn't believe in. I mean, it's fine if you if you love the Constitution and you want to critic uh, critique the Obama administration. That's all to the good. I certainly did that, but uh, you, you got to actually believe what you're saying. And uh, here, <laughs> all right, I, I'm just we're gonna get through it real fast. I'm gonna move on to something else that's more important, like roll call. Um, but here's uh, Joe Walsh talking about how Kellyanne Conway's husband, this is what made me think of it, 
you said Kellyanne's soundbite here. Joe Walsh talking about George Conway. Let me say this about George Conway. History will look back on this period and they'll identify George Conway as one of our greatest patriots. I mean, think about his unique position. And yet, I mean, can we just can we just take a stop for a second here? For for tweeting out nasty things about Trump, he's one of our great patriots. I mean, is Joe Walsh a total moron? I don't know. We've we've got people serving in in frontline combat roles overseas. We got first responders doing amazing things, saving lives. We've got all, I mean, just think about all the different ways people are being patriotic in this country. You know, just all, all the heroes you can think of off the top of your head. You know, law enforcement, and, and now we get on the list. You know, entrepreneurs and people who are doing a great job, job teaching our kids. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But George Conway is the great patriot. This, uh, this, 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 uh, speaking of a blowhard, this guy just goes after Trump on Twitter all the time like a maniac. He speaks out every day. Why does George Conway speak out against Donald Trump every day? Because in his heart, he knows what a danger Donald Trump is to this country. George Conway's in a difficult position because of his wife to say that, but he says it because he believes it. He's been a wonderful friend and a wonderful advisor to my campaign. Man, I'd be blessed, and I welcome George's support, and I hope that there will can be I, formal support. I just, support yeah, I just want to say this now. All you have to know about George Conway's judgment, the, o- the only thing you have to know, there's only one thing you have to know, is that he would give any advice or any way want to be involved in Joe Walsh's laughable dumpster fire of an I'm running for president movement. <laughs> okay, that's all you have to know. I mean, these never Trumpers. Can we just have one never Trumper who's really prominent, who's really you know vocal, who con- and doesn't prove himself to just be a total clown and a jerk. It's just a matter of time. Could we just have one never Trumper who does that? Just one. It'd be amazing. I just want to say uh, congratulations to my cousin Janie and her husband uh, Christian. They got married over the weekend. Went to a wedding out at the Larchmont Yacht Club where all the finest yachts and schooners in the Larchmont area gather. I'm not really a, I'm not really a boat guy. I get I get seasick, but uh, I I do. It was very pretty to look at, and it was a beautiful wedding, fantastic wedding. Uh, everybody seemed to have a lot of fun. Live band, always wonder about. Okay, here we go, producer Mark. Are you going live band or DJ at your wedding? I wanted a band, but I'm going DJ because bands are really expensive. Really expensive. Yeah, like ten grand. I was going to say like started a like, like a good band. a good band is ten grand. Yeah, that's what I've been told. A good band is ten. It's ridiculous. Grand. I mean, I understand why, because you're paying live performers rather than just one guy playing music, but still. I mean, I could probably DJ your wedding, man. I just set up one of my Spotify playlists, okay. D- DJ Buck in the house. I don't, yeah. I don't think my future wife will like that. DJ Buck's got all the flavor. It's, no? It just sounds lame. Oh, it, it actually sounded <laughs> it lame as I, as I said it, if we're really going to be honest about this. Um, but no, the wedi- wedding was good. They had they, the only gluten-free appetizer. They had two gluten-free appetizers, which this is where usually I get I get totally... You know, I, I get the short end of the stick, um, and, and it's because when you get the all the good apps are breaded, and I have celiac disease, so you get the little little crab cakes, which are the things that I love most in life, and I can't eat them because they're all they're breaded crab cakes. So that's and then anything that's on a little crostini, you know, a little fancy crostini, can't eat those. But they had little, it was, it was very fancy. They had uh, little potatoes sliced in half with creme fraiche and caviar. I felt like I should be wearing a top hat and a monocle every time I ate one, you know? 
I looked like Mr. Peanut with like a cane. And I was like, oh, my good man, pass me more of that sliced purple potato with the caviar and the creme fraiche. Not cream cheese. Not cream cheese. I'm not a savage. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was good. That was fun. I did not bust out uh, funky dance moves. I went solo. So that's so unless I was going to dance with like one of my brothers, which would be fine, you know, we could have a dance off. But uh, I did not really bust out my. F- I would otherwise I would have Instagrammed it, producer Mark. I would have showed the masses. You that, didn't find any nice single ladies? Nah, man. I'm I'm when I go to the wedding, I'm pretty much trying to, uh, you know, focus on the nuptials sure. and and the sacrament that is occurring. I'm oh. I'm not you know there's, I'm not one there's of these no guys time from, for that stuff. Yeah, exactly. I'm not one of these guys from Wedding Crashers. In there, like, yeah, we lost a lot of good men out there. Remember that guy? <laughs> I got a stage four clinger. Uh, first half of that movie, fantastic. In my first, the first hour of Wedding Crashers, basically all the way until they they finish up at the island where he gets they go you know uh, they go quail hunting. That's all great, and then the movie it just starts going downhill. It just starts crashing and and burning in a pretty. In a pretty big way, so I, I can't say that uh, I, I celebrate all of Wedding Crashers. All right, so the wedding was great. I just want to say congrats to uh, my cousin Janie. She's all she's all grown up now. Now the pressure is on the Sexton boys, man. We need one. There's three of us, all unmarried. It's go time. And we got roll call in just a moment. It's going to be a fantastic session. Stay with us. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. We should probably update our Roll Call music, although it's sort of grown on me. What do you think, producers John and Mark? Is it time to get some new tunes? Sounds like more work for me. It, it is. Yeah. Yeah, but now you've set the bar high because now That's we've true. got a, now we've got an email address well, for the show. Not according to one guy. Did and you, everybody did you read this one email. No, I didn't see that one. Would you like me to read it? Yeah, man, go for. You can read email. Uh, go I for can it. read an email. Yeah, oh, go for I'm it. I'm honored. This is from uh, Dennis, <laughs> an SLC. Uh oh. Obama wouldn't hire Mark to set up a website, but you trust him to produce a show. It only took one year to get an email address. Boo to producer Mark. <laughs> I don't know why you find this funny. <laughs> I haven't even been here a year. I know. I know. I've been in charge of this for a week, a week, and I got it done. I know. And this guy's blaming me. Oh, man, that's great. I know. You know. It's good times. We've only been, in fairness, we've only had a show for, I think, three years now. Yeah. And you've been here a full week. Yes. So I mean, I've been here since April, but in this job, no. But it, but like running things, yes. you've been here for a week. Uh, so you know, maybe maybe he's not giving you quite enough time. But yeah, you know, I mean, it w- I wasn't the one smoking <laughs> cigarettes just, and with the ladies. Yeah, that hey, was the old guy, hey, producer, producer Mike. You know, I don't know. He's he's in Bora Bora right now with the Swedish bikini team. I don't know what he's up to. Exactly. But he's decided to. Move on to greener pastures. Um, I, I gotta say, uh, I just like the Obama wouldn't hire you to build an Obamacare website or whatever. That's pretty. It's just a website in general. Oh, just so. a website. <laughs> well, oh. I think it's a reference to how they spent uh, some absolutely obscene amount of money. Like it was. Hundreds I could do a better job. Yeah, oh. yeah, I'd yeah. Get that's, it done. That's, that's true. I think that's fair. Anyway, well, that's that email just brightened up my day. What do you think, producer John? 
thumbs up, thumbs down. You got to stay out. He's <laughs> he's giving it like half-hearted thumbs up. All right, we'll take it. Let's see what else we have in the box. We started off on a high note today. Yeah, you guys, you can always give a little, uh, little bit of a, uh, you know, a little bit of the rough stuff to producer. Yeah, but Mark. just he be can, truthful. He can handle you. it. He can handle. I it. want facts. You know what he loves. When one of you has a problem with your uploading of the podcast and you blame him for it, he loves that. Yeah, he, yeah. my favorite thing. That's his favorite thing. <laughs> All right. Let's see what else we got here. We got uh, John. who. Oh, this is via email, by the way, because we do the email now, too, and Facebook. The email is teambuck at iheartmedia.com. We're very proud of it because we have an official email for all of you, as you know. And uh, both producer Mark and I get it. So any marriage proposals, please just be aware that producer Mark is already soon to be a married man. All right. So ease up. I'm Uh, taken. But Buck is available. uh, He's on the prowl. So... Here we go with uh, with John's email, and we'll get to some Facebook messages as well, too. Uh, we have, Buck, Trump is the ultimate capitalist. As such, just the fact that he is, he is a direct government swamp, a direct threat to the government swamp and every bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., that's one of the reasons they hate him so much. John in... I don't know where. Uh, John, thank you, man. And yeah, they, they definitely don't like the fact that Trump is a is a businessman. Notice how Democrats, Democrats really just, they don't trust people that run businesses. They, they think, that, as politicians, they think that success in life in the private sector is suspect. If all you've ever done is write books about yourself, give speeches, and make promises you don't keep as a politician, maybe a little community organizing, maybe a little bit of you know, running for office since you're 25 or something, then they think you're great. But if you're somebody who has gotten out there and had to show results, they don't trust you. They don't trust you. They just don't. Jacob, I love it. You have an official email now. High five, producer Mark. You know, high five. I'm doing. You got a, you got a lot of high fives, right? I didn't want your ego getting a little swelled. Just Listen, because- I like 99 percent of the listeners. There's just the one guy that doesn't like me. I mean, there you go. We'll take 99. 99% of Team Buck is fantastic. 1% are commies just trying to find us slipping up sometime. Uh, Jacob writes, I love that you have the official email. I'm doing my best to get out the word about Team Buck and recommending the podcast to all my friends. Go Team Buck with your shield or on it. Jake in upstate New York. Jake, thank you so much, my man. And uh, yes, as you know, starting Monday, right? A week from today. Isn't that correct? That is correct. A week from today. You will be able to download the Buck Sexton show and listen to it at your leisure via podcast starting at three Eastern every day. So you really, really, really want you all to start subscribing, please, to that podcast. We want to uh, show the the powers that be that you all will listen uh, in your drive time and you can get friends and, and family to listen in drive time as well now that that's possible because we've moved up. Uh, when we do the show, you'll still be able to listen on all of your affiliates, all your radio stations across the country, but uh, the podcast will be out early. So there you have it. Uh, that's that's the way we're going to roll. That's where we're going to do it. Um, let us see now. Oh, and by the way, iTunes, great place to subscribe. And do you also, in the iHeart app, you can subscribe as the well. The iHeart app, more on Spotify. We're everywhere. Wherever, 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 wherever podcasts fine pod- are sold. Everywhere fine podcasts <laughs> are sold. Exactly. So we're going to put up links for, for all these things on Facebook, um, and, and we'll put them up throughout this week. 
But I mean, I, I really would love to see a bump in those uh, in the podcast subscription numbers. Look, I mean, I, I think we are doing as as good, if not better, a conservative daily news show as as any you're going to find out there. At least we'll, we'll, we'll say to give due deference to the greats in the in the under 50 range. All right. So if you're under 50, this is the best show out there. There we go. Meaning that for a host who's under 50, bam. Um, and I, I, of course, have to show respect to my elders, the big guys. You know who they are. But please do subscribe. Please do check it out. Um, Paul. Oh, yeah. So I, like I said, iTunes, iHeart, uh, iHeart app, the Buck Sexton Show. You know how we do. Paul writes, as a Second Amendment rights guy and a Border Patrol agent, I know about a couple of things to recognize the extreme dishonesty of the leftist propaganda industry. You illustrate this better than anyone, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Border Patrol Paul. Border Patrol Paul, thank you for keeping our border secure or as secure as you can, especially given the Democrats are trying to kick it wide open. And uh, thank you so much for writing in. I appreciate your support, and we will take the fight to the left. That is what we do here on the show. We are in a war of ideas, my friends, and you are in the trench with me. Um, let's see here. Uh, this is a bit long, so I'm going to have to read that one on my own. Uh, Paul, right? Uh, whoa, this is all, sorry. Some of these are very long, so I got to another Paul writes. Uh, we got a couple of Pauls. I love the show. I wish I could say I was OSS. I'm late to the party. Uh, I look forward to the days when you were a fill-in host, but really came on board when you did your weekly podcast with Porter Stansberry. When you left that show, I went looking for your radio podcast. All that is a lead into the most important question in radio. Where is Ariana? Is Porter keeping her hostage in his yacht? I dream of debates between Ariana, Beto, and, and uh, Focahontas. Please, 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 please bring her back. Well, darling, if you come to the Stansberry Research Conference in a couple of weeks down in Las Vegas, Ariana Huffington will be there. She will be giving free yoga lessons. She will teach you how to be a... A water sommelier, that's right, H2O sommelier for the most high-purity, delicious water. Come listen to Ariana at the Stansberry Research. You can watch us in Vegas on the live stream. That's uh, October, let me tell you when that is. We are, I'm serious about all that, by the way. I'm going to be in Vegas. Ariana, so to speak, will be making an appearance. That's October 7th through the 9th. Uh, I'll be there. And that's the Stansbury Research Conference. Bam. It is going to be fantastic. Uh, so if you want Ariana, there you go. Or you just got some Ariana now because I'm in the crowd-pleasing business. Kelsey, I really enjoy your show, and I'd like to offer some constructive feedback, if I may. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Do I want to read this one? I hear the argument from the left more and more that you don't need an AR or an AK to hunt, and I hear more and more Second Amendment advocates argue both platforms are actually used for hunting. I have heard Dana Lash make this argument on occasion. I've heard you posit this point on air. You argue that 223 was not effective for deer, if I remember correctly. I, I don't ever remember saying that, for whatever that's worth. I know that people can use it for deer, but anyway. With, I mean, it's, it's not a very heavy bullet, so if you got a big, you know, I wouldn't go moose hunting with it unless you're going to you know, put a lot of rounds in it. Anyway, with respect, uh, the argument should never be about the cartridge because this allows gun grabbers to frame the Second Amendment around the idea of it being for hunting. The argument, in my opinion, needs to be who cares? The Second Amendment isn't about hunting. It's about my absolute God-given right to defend myself with lethal force. Thank you for your time. Sincerely, Kelsey. Well, Kelsey, um, I don't see where you and I disagree on this point at all. I've often said that the Second Amendment is about 
a, a defense, an individual's right to be part of a citizen's defense against tyranny, as well as to defend himself, his home, and his family. So, yeah, I, I think we are in exactly the same place on this one. So I'll just, I'll take this as a win. I'll, well, I'll take a W on this. Sometimes we got to hand ourselves a W. Gina, thank you, Buck, and producers for giving us a way to connect. I love your show, and Buck, you are on fire. My number one favorite radio talk show host. Love your passion, intellect, and sense of humor. Thank you for all you do, Gina. Well, thank you, Gina. That's a really nice email. I'm going to go walk down the street, strut my stuff a little bit, feel like I'm actually making some of the folks happy. That's what I like to see. Um, We already heard from uh, Dennis. We don't need to get to that. Rocky writes, I'm Rocky the Nebraska guy. All right, Rocky the Nebraska guy. Good to hear from you, my friend. Thank you so much. Andrew, just in case we didn't know, wrote roll call in the subject heading. Thank you, Andrew. That is very helpful. Shields, hi, dog. What do you know about cryptocurrency? I believe the third largest cryptocurrency is being set up as the world currency. What do you think? Andrew, cryptocurrency is almost turned into a... Uh, a spiritual religious belief. I mean, it's, I, I know it's a real thing. I'm not saying that, but people think that it's going to revolutionize the world and other people think that it's really not going to do much of anything. So all depends on who you ask, my man. I'm not, you know, you have to be really, really deep in the weeds on crypto. You got to be deep in the Bitcoin, my man, to know what's going on. Like Scrooge McDuck swimming in his giant vault of coins. Remember that? Ducktails. Woo! You guys watch. You guys watch Ducktales. There's no way you did not watch Ducktales. I, Duck Dynasty. Duck Dynasty. Yeah, I don't know what Ducktales well, is. Of course, yeah. Now the audience is like, "That's right." Producer Mark doesn't want to turn in his, not even his man card. Ducktales would be an adult card thing, but I think it's probably pretty decent as an adult. I wish I could do the little duck voices, but I can't. You know, it's kind of like little Donald Ducks. Producer John knows what I'm talking about, but yeah, Saturday, it was a Saturday morning cartoon thing. Yeah, Mark is just doing his ageism thing again. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, we keep getting confused. You know, which one of you was the older, is the older producer, the older, wiser producer in here? I never, you know, I can't keep it straight. Both both of you guys, a lot of wisdom. A little salty at that. All right, that's going to be it for today's fantastic radio show. Like I said, starting Monday, there will be a, uh, a way to download the Buck Sexton Show on podcast every day. You can listen to it on podcast at 3 o'clock eastern that's the way to do it um you can get on you can get it on itunes you can get it on spotify you can get it on all these different amazing platforms uh please subscribe now it'll start popping into your feed monday at 3 p.m also if you are in the new york city area this thursday the women's uh the women's national republican club 7 p.m in midtown manhattan i will be giving a speech on wartime conservatism it is going to be lit, as the kids say. I need you there, team. If you're in the New York area, come into Midtown. Come out to the coast. Have a few laughs. We'll have some drinks. You'll hear a great speech. It'll be fantastic. It's like 10 bucks or 15 bucks at the door. I will see you there. Shields high.